0: And not that this is a Plaza Appreciation Podcast, but let's make it that for just a moment. I also wanted to just point out how excellent she was in... Help me, Brandon. It's a Christmas movie with Kristen Stewart, but I'm not finding the
1: name. Happy Season, right?
0: Is that what it's called? Happiest Season?
1: Oh, Kristen Stewart, right? Yes. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 19 of Plot Devices. We're on the road to episode 20. I don't know what that means. 20 is an important number. Why can't 19 be an important number? I am your host for today, Brandon King, alongside my co-host, Noah Guzman, who is finally out of his cold funk. Noah, I understand you are doing much healthier now. How are you in regards to that and everything else?
0: I was in the middle of my cold funk, but like a Funko Pop, I popped back up, and I'm happy to be back in the world, Brandon. We are here, according to episode 19, on the road to episode 20. We don't know what that means, but it means we're one step closer to episode 21, and that means we're one step closer to episode 999. You name it, Brandon.
1: We were talking about Funko Pops before this. I'm just impressed you fitted that in. Like, that's just talent, my friend. <laughs>
0: Hey, dude, would you give me something? It's like a boomerang. I got to throw it back at you all the time.
1: And I can't do any of that. Uh, <laughs> let's. Uh, we're skipping directorial debut. We're uh, kind of limiting ourselves on TV and movies today, but we got some big ones, obviously. Scream, Book of Fett. we're going to be talking about all that. Uh, right at the top, though, uh, we have been. So if you guys didn't know, we've been doing this on a bi weekly basis now. So of course, that means we skip over a lot of important news. Uh, so this is our first major show coming into the new year. And as such, Unfortunately, a lot of celebrities have passed away. A lot of people in the public eye have passed away. Simply four names that we just wanted to uh, bring up very quickly. Uh, Betty White, unfortunately, passed away uh, over New Year's. Uh, I'm sure as everyone knew, there were tributes all over online uh, talking about her. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, the legendary independent director, he passed away on January 6th. Also passing away, uh, the legend doesn't begin to cut it. Uh, the widely acclaimed performer, Sidney Poitier, uh, of course, from you know guests coming to dinner and Uh, Liz of the Field and a bunch of other things, pioneering black actor. He also died on January 6th. Uh, And finally, most recently, January 9th, uh, just this past week as we're recording, uh, Bob Saget, of course, from uh, Full House, uh, from America's Funniest Home Videos, stand-up comic legend in his own right, uh, passed away at only the age of 65, very young. Uh, They're still trying to uh, figure out his cause of death. Uh, we here at Plot Devices, of course, send out our condolences to all the families and friends and loved ones involved. Um, for myself, I have been a fan of all of them in certain capacities. Uh, I'm woefully unfamiliar with Bogdanovich's work, aside from, like, Last Picture Show and Other Side of the Wind and a couple things here and there. But I know of the impact he has had on independent cinema and I know a lot of friends of mine who have been reeling from the loss of, you know, such a legend. He's popped up on Sopranos. He's popped up as an actor as well, but primarily as a director of independent film. Betty White, of course, is an icon for a variety of reasons. Uh, if you get a chance, among the many, many things in her career, uh, check out her SNL hosting. Uh, it was phenomenal. It was, you know, the end of an era, so to speak, for SNL. Uh, but the beginning of another for her, uh, just getting started. Um, Bob Saget, of course, I grew up with Full House. So, you know, he's always going to be, you know, Danny to me. Um, but again, like he's popped up in other things I've always appreciated his art and Sidney Poitier, who in the last number of years, I have very much been exposed to as yes, a tremendous actor in his own right, but also a pioneer in his field. He was the first black actor to win lead actor at the Oscars. Uh, he always came with such a sense of poise. If you get a chance watch his, um, he did a CBS Sunday morning interview several years ago that just got reposted. Uh, and again, he has such dignity and poise and, you know, just grace to him, even at that age. And I just, I am so impressed by him as a talent and a human being. And I think that was the one that hit me the most, just going back and revisiting his work. Uh, Noah, as far as you go, uh, I know you have some experience with these performers as well.
0: Yes. Condolences, of course, to friends, family, and fans of all these legends that have recently passed Uh, 2021 couldn't leave us without a, you know, sweet goodbye. And so uh, we did have to say goodbye to Betty White at the end of that year before entering the new one. And one of the, one of my fond memories of experiences, experiencing Betty White's work was when I was watching The Proposal in a drive through theater. And that was because it felt like you know, that's somebody who can hold comedy so well that, you know, generationally didn't matter if you were my parents or my grandparents, or you were little me in in elementary school watching that movie and just feeling like she, she was just raw comedy. Like she, she really knew how to just make you feel so good and full of laughter. And, um, you know, the world's going to miss all of these uh, beautiful performers and beautiful artists. And just like you said, Brandon, um, I'm familiar with Bob, Bob Saget, of course, from full house. Um, that legacy is going to live on forever as like that family sitcom and, um, You know, I'm just happy that I'm happy that we have so much work to appreciate them with um, in their passing. And you know, I send nothing but respects to their fans and family.
1: Of course, and uh, as we say all the time, go check out their work. That's how they live on, and that's how we continue to appreciate them. Uh, moving on to a bit more of a chaotic piece of news in the world, like this, I think in a good sense, uh, depends how you look at it. Uh, award season is kind of in flux right now due to a little thing called Omicron and the coronavirus pandemic, uh, which is still very much a thing. And we're probably gonna mention that a few times on the show. Uh, Critics' Choice, Emmys, they've all pushed back to so ceremonies, And this is affecting the Oscars as well. Uh, they're currently set for late March. Uh, they are still set to go on. They're still set to have, you know, an audience once again. However, as part of a big as part of a fairly big news announcement for the first time since 2018 the academy awards are going to have a host again uh this was confirmed by abc entertainment president craig erwick uh later by the oscar social media pages this again will be the first time since 2018 2019 was supposed to have uh if you remember kevin hart was supposed to host uh debacle happened things were resurfaced we're gonna leave it at that uh the popular rumor right now is that both tom holland and or pete davidson have been the top choices approach to hosts. although neither of those has been confirmed those are just more reports that have been you know scouring the internet uh but that is a thing uh suggestions online of course have bursted throughout film twitter uh ranging from classic hosts like billy crystal and whoopi goldberg to, you know, names like lin Miranda, Hasan Minaj, and more eclectic choices, uh, like Annette's, Baby Annette, or The Lamb from Lamb. Uh, the 22 Oscars are, again, set, they're still set for broadcast on March 27th. Uh, again, Spice, I put this in the question, it might get moved, but right now that's where it's set. Nominees are set to be announced on February 8th. We are more than likely going to be doing a mini-episode reacting to those nominees as well, so stay tuned for all of that nonsense. Noah, I want to go over to you first. Uh, I know you're not as big of a um, as as a, of an Oscars, you know, junkie as I am. But judging from this news, number one, is it a good idea after you know they have a heart debacle? After going a couple of years without a host, is this a good idea? What do you think of these you know rumors that have started floating around? And again, should the Oscars move in the wake of everything that's going on?
0: I definitely want a hosted Oscar event because you know when I do tune into that, I love to be guided by whoever's going to be holding that microphone, letting us know all nominations and keeping us just keeping those moments in between filled with life filled with joy and sometimes filled with straight up like call outs from the industry so the people who i think should be hosting it are those who have like that that trick of the tongue and so what i'm reminded of is how shocked everyone was at the golden globes i'm researching now it was the 73rd golden globes hosted in 2016 by rich by ricky gervais oh yeah (laughs) right there were so many meme or gif reactions of celebrities surrounding that auditorium, just like looking at each other, like what is going on tonight? And that's what I love. I think that if they can invite somebody who can play with that in that kind of atmosphere, that's what I want to tune in for, because we want to, we want to see all those cast of um actors of high prolific, um, you know, the elite of Hollywood, and then see somebody who can just look at them like normal people, because that's ultimately who, what we all are. We're normal people. So the two, my short list includes Billy Eichner, Am I saying that last name right? That's Billy Agner from Billy on the Streets. Billy Agner from Billy on the Streets. And I just rewatched Eternals, Kumail Nanjiani. I think that that would be an excellent choice. And um, like I said, what I'm playing to here is kind of like that that trick of the tongue. So that's what I'm looking for in a new host.
1: You know what? Kumail could totally do it. And if you're going the lines of a Pete Davidson, by the way, I don't want either Pete Davidson or Tom Holland to host. Like, I love them both. uh, Don't let them anymore. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I don't want, no. Yeah, don't. Um, but if you are going the route of the last number of years or the rumors that we've been hearing, they want to go back to comedians, which again, Kevin Hart thing is lingering over, whatever. Um, but I like the idea of Kumail Nanjiani. Like most people really like him. Um, he's got the Eternals buzz. He's got, you know, if you want to bring in, you know, the popular film crowd, he's part of that. Um, and again, he's likable. He's charming. He's funny. He can totally do it. Um, for me, there are two names. Um, one is Hugh Jackman who I genuinely liked because uh, I let me, let me preface. I have not gone back and watched like every Oscar host clip. Like, I don't know all of like, I wasn't saying like Steve Martin. I don't know if he's a great Oscar host. I just haven't watched his clips from that. Um, Hugh Jackman, though, I have, and he brings the house down in those clips from the uh, 2009 ceremony i would love to see him come back to do it especially now that he's kind of embraced his theater persona even more you know it again don't make the oscars the tony's kind of thing i get that but like maybe you should like if you want to bring people and make it a show i think that's a neat idea the other one and i've been screaming this for at least five years if not more and i'm sure you've heard people say this get the muppets to host the oscars the muppets (laughs)
0: How unsurprising from you, Brandon?
1: Get the Muppets to host the Oscars, Um, and shout out to Zach Pope, fellow Phoenix Film Critic, who I saw tweet that out. Love you, dude. Um, They should do it. Like even people who don't like the Muppets, there's no one who hates the Muppets. Like even at their worst. There is a self-awareness and a righteous fury to the Muppets that I think has always gone, I think has always been boldly at the surface because, you know, they're puppets. Um, But again, like the characters are recognizable. The voices are there. You can have an amazing time with, you know, sketches things like that. I've been dying to see this for years. They still haven't done it. I don't know why. Uh, But yes, either Hugh Jackman or the Muppets would be my pick for this.
0: Yeah, so Brandon and I are calling it now, okay, within the next hundred years, if (laughs) if the Muppets host or Kumail Nanjiani Send us flowers, chocolate flowers. I want to eat them.
1: Yes, that, that is all we ask from the Oscars. It's not much from you. <laughs> it's not much. It's really not. Right. What um, else we got going on? Yeah, let's move on to someone who I've actually seen uh, as a potential Oscar uh, host front runner, at least in a few circles. Um, Aubrey Plaza, who is not hosting the Oscars, but she is going to be in White Lotus, uh, which Noah and I actually talked about. Go back and listen to that episode if you're wondering Hear our thoughts on that. Uh, She has been confirmed to join season two of HBO's now anthology series, The White Lotus. She is going to play Harper Spiller, a woman on vacation with friends who joins returning showrunner, Mike White, who of course ran the first season. Uh, alongside Michael Imperioli from the Sopranos, as well as Jennifer Coolidge, who is set to return from season one in some kind of guest capacity. Uh, the second season will once again focus on the titular resort, albeit separate from Hawaii in season one. The rumors are that it's supposed to be take place some place in Europe at one of the other locations, but it won't be the same cast of characters or the same setting as the first season. Uh, no release date has been set, although production is expected to begin sometime this year. Uh, Noah, your thoughts on Aubrey Plaza, and again, just knowing the basic character description, is this a good fit for White Lotus?
0: It is an excellent grab for White Lotus to cast Aubrey Plaza. I think that her addition to this, it, it, what, what do you call this style of comedy? I can't call it satire, right?
1: In a way. I think that's what Mike White wants it to be.
0: Yeah. Okay. Regardless, it works. And I'm telling you that opening theme, if they change it, I might riot, but it might, they might change it for something better because that opening theme, I'm surprised it didn't make it to my Spotify wrapped. Um, I'm so happy to see that Jennifer Coolidge is going to be returning, um, alongside, uh, the new casting announcement. I'm a little sad that we're going to be losing, uh, Murray Bartlett. I really, I really grew attached to our, um, you know, our first location of the White Lotus, uh, as the, as the head, head honcho of sorts that was running things. Um, but I can see why his story kind of like ended. Who knows? Maybe he'll pop up as a cameo because we are still on Hawaii but i have nothing but smiles to throw at this piece of news like be plaza there was another trailer that dropped uh recently that i pointed out to brandon we were considering including it in the show um but she's going to be busy with work because She is involved in Guy Ritchie's next film titled Operation Fortune, which you should check out the trailer for, because that looks pretty wacky. Um, But that's what we can expect from Plaza. Like she's just, she's going to be on board. She's going to give it her all and it's going to feel fresh. It's not going to feel stale or just recycled. And, you know, this is something I'm going to be waiting for the premiere for.
1: I think Plaza as a performer has that right balance of comedic roots but delving into more dramatic material. Like if you saw Ingrid Goes West, if you saw you know her work on Legion, uh, she can do this. She can easily match that tone that Mike White has been going for. Um, I'm curious to see how well they round out the rest of the cast because season one was very much a thing of some people you know and some people you have never heard of until this show. I'd be Marie Bartlett. Um, I'm curious to see how they tackle the nuance of it all because the Hawaii setting very much lent it to you know, colonialism and classism and how do you do that in a different setting? And I'm curious how that works. Uh, but just purely on Plaza's involvement, count me in. And not that this
0: is a Plaza Appreciation Podcast, but let's make it that for just a moment. I also wanted to just point out how excellent she was in... Help me, Brandon. It's a Christmas movie with Kristen Stewart, but I'm not finding the name.
1: Oh, uh, 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 this, the one from this Happiest Christmas? Season, right?
0: Is that what it's called? Happiest Season?
1: Oh, Kristen Stewart, right?
0: Yes. Uh, I don't know how we could stitch that together. I can redo it, though. Do you want me to?
1: No, you know what? Keep that in. I'm going to put in like a cricket sound effect for the intro. That'll be the intro moment.
0: That works. Okay. Everybody go check out that queer Christmas movie. It is beautiful. And it includes Kristen Stewart and Aubrey Plaza. Not that they're the lovers in the movie or are they? You have to find out. Okay.
1: Noah is no one, if not someone who will never spoil for you. And that's why we respect. Um, moving on to our next topic, uh, in case you guys hadn't heard, I think we may have mentioned this on the show before. I'm not sure. Uh, there's going to be a spinoff of the quiet place movies. Uh, there is going to be a third one that John Krasinski is going to do, but the next development is going to be taking basically the Kingsman approach where they do the first two spin off and the third. Uh, that's topical because we talked about Kingsman in the last episode. Um, but, uh, originally Jeff Nichols, uh, who directed take shelter, loving a bunch of other things. He was attached to the project. Uh, he departed back in October. So we were kind of wondering who was going to replace him. Now we know, uh, Deadline first reported that Michael Sarnowski is going to helm the project, who if any of you saw the Nicolas Cage, Alex Wolf movie, Pig, from last year about uh, Nicolas Cage as the uh, pig farmer I'm asking you because you've seen it. you say pig farmer No, just pig-farmer. Yo,
0: he's got a pig, and the pig can sniff something. I think that's what the movie is. Just so you all listeners know, I didn't finish the movie, but I'm going to pretend like I'm the expert here. Yeah, so I think that he's like... He uses the pig, who's a she, thank you, she pig, Um, who just, I don't know, like, she finds something for him. So it's a big deal that she's taken. We're still working on it, okay? This is a mystery that we're solving ourselves over at the Plot Devices pod.
1: Right. Needless to say, Michael sarnowski did a movie called Pig with Nicolas Cage. It's getting a lot of awards buzz this year. It's apparently great. I have not watched it. Noah's has watched some of it. But the director of that film is going to be working in the Quiet Place universe. Again, we don't know what the story is going to be. It's from John Krasinski, uh, the story is going to be. Uh, We don't know specific plot details, but we know a release date. It's set for March 2023, so it's a little while away, but we are getting more Quiet Place very soon. And Quiet Place 3 is probably going to hit theaters 2024 at the earliest. Uh, They probably wouldn't do it the same year. Uh, Noah, you've seen both Quiet Places um, and you've seen part of Pig. So I look to you for guidance on this topic. Uh, what do you think about Sarnofsky's directing just from what you've seen in Pig? And what could you picture a spin-off of The Quiet Place being based on what we've gotten and, you know, just your own ideas? So what can I expect? For one, I want
0: more from the Quiet Place universe. After we got that first film, it left us, it left us I guess not with the cliffhanger, but just with a wrap up that made us just feel, Oh no, like we can't just know that there's this one thing that defeats the creatures. Like we need to know the creature's backstory. We need to know how, how other communities have survived and lived on throughout this. We saw a little bit of that in a quiet place, part two, um, other parts of the world. Is this the one creature that came down from the sky? Cause these are aliens that we're talking about here in a quiet place. So um you know, I think there's just so much more to explore in that world, even if it doesn't involve the aliens, the dynamics between survivors um, that have been living one way versus other people who have just been scavenging for their whole lives throughout this survival process. That just tells wonderful stories. It's going to be the reason why freaking The Last of Us is going to be amazing. Um But as far as the directing work, um after seeing, you know, Majority of Pig... I have no negative comments for the director on Pig. Even when it comes to the actors, we have Alex Wolf, we have Nicholas Cage, who is going to be busy in the next year. We'll be keeping up with him. Um, but I think once I wrap up on that film, I'll have a better idea of what to expect from this spin-off of in this quiet place universe. But so far, I mean, all I all I have is like, you know, full speed ahead. I am ready to see more work from somebody who wants to take a, a concept like pig which is really just about this man um we call him pig farmer he's got a special pig and it gets kidnapped from him and he takes you on this journey into the city into like these underground negotiations where clearly your main character isn't who you thought they were in the beginning and Nicolas cage in pig plays like a silent he's like a silent giant and so I'm just interested in seeing what he can bring to the to the characters of A Quiet Place um, or, you know, different characters. A Quiet Place has been an excellent vehicle for some actors that we've been paying attention to, like Millicent Simmons. So it's going to be exciting to see that world expand.
1: Being the security cat that I am, I have not watched them, but I'm very curious to see how that world develops. I still need to see Pig. I've heard that Sarnowski is a really interesting director, director to watch in terms of how he uses grit and silence and kind of the absence of emotion to enhance the aesthetic of his movies. Um, or movie, I should say, just because, you know, it's his debut. Um, I'm just kind of sad Jeff Nichols isn't doing it because I want to see more from him. I really liked his work, but apparently he's off working on Better Things at Paramount, so good for him. But yeah, this sounds fascinating. Did you say debut? Yeah. Pig was his first movie.
0: Wow. Then I'm even, I'm even more on board with that. Yeah. I expected this to, I expected that movie when watching it, it just felt like it came from somebody who's just been in the industry and who's just, you know, who's, who's ran that race before. So no, yeah, this is going to be, that's going to be a great thing, Brandon.
1: Right. And credit to Nicolas Cage for like bringing the guy on because like he has the hole in the industry. Let's move on then to our quick hit segment. This is the portion of the show where if you're just looking for, you know, quicker one to one and a half minute segments, because we go long, because we don't know when to stop, even with timers. Uh, this is where we just put out a couple stories that, you know, we don't really have the time to go into in depth, but we want to give them to you guys anyway. Uh, Noah, do you mind starting?
0: I have no problem starting. I got my little script right here. That's right. We're prepared now. We write scripts. All right. So we're going to go ahead and set. We're professional. We're professional because we're also hip. All right. So here we go. I'm going to start my timer. It's going to be one minute and I'm going now. Storm Reid from Euphoria and more is joining the cast of HBO's The Last of Us. Casting announcements for the legendary video game turned live action series has included Pedro Pascal in the leading role as Joel, Bella Ramsey alongside Pascal as Ellie, Bella Ramsey is from Game of Thrones, and Nick Offerman playing Bill. Fans, you know who they are, you know, video game fans listeners, you're kind of just thinking, great, these are random names. <laughs> well, Reed joins uh, playing a character named Riley. Riley is primarily connected to uh, Ramsey's character, Ellie, and it's a character only mentioned in passing in the video game by Ellie. Their relationship wouldn't be fully explored until a DLC dropped for the game called Left Behind. So if you're curious about those story details, go ahead and check out the Wikipedia, um, check out the Gamespedia, do what you need to do. Um, but when that DLC was released, it peeled back a layer on what these two experienced together, and I'm happy to see, hopefully, that fleshed out in the universe of The Last of Us and this series. Time.
1: Very, very cool. Um, and also, the, the cast looks great. You got the showrunner from Chernobyl running it. Um, I'm I, someone who's ever played the games. I'm excited to see it. Uh, getting into mind, if I can get my freaking
0: take it yeah, away, Brandon.
1: I am trying. In three, two. So as many of you know, I am a massive fan of the Overse, so maybe one of the last ones left. I don't know how big the fan base is. It's the CW. Um, but in the midst of the CW potential merger with NextStar and Warner Brothers and all the corporate stuff, lots of shows have been either rumored or in the works for a while one of which is a show called justice you uh and we now know who's going to be starring in that uh david ramsey who of course made his name on arrow playing john diggle he is going to be starring and potentially directing the pilot episode if it gets picked up the series the show is going to center around uh diggle as he recruits 5 metahuman teenagers for training at a prestigious university to begin their training as the world's next great heroes uh no other air stars are currently signed on yet although ramsey has signed an overall deal with a CW to direct and guest star on other Arrowverse shows like Superman and Lois, which just premiered its second season, as well as Batwoman in the midst of its third season as well. This also comes in the midst of, you know, Gotham Knights being announced, which we talked about in the show uh, a couple weeks ago, as well as Naomi, uh, Ava DuVernay's Arrowverse series that just premiered this last week. I'm ecstatic. I love the character of Diggle. I wish we'd seen more from him. But again, we're getting what we get, and I hope it's picked pick up series and time. Naomi, have you, has that premiered already? First episode premiered last week, and I completely blanked on it. I definitely want to give it a watch. We will have to have a conversation about that,
0: because I saw that trailer. I have questions. I have questions.
1: As do I, but I trust Ava review. We are going to move on, then, into our new releases for this week. We've got Hotel Transylvania, Transformania. We've got Scream. We've got Tragedy of Macbeth. We're going to start uh, off—I should say I'm going to start off, because I reviewed this for ASU Odyssey— uh, Tr- hotel Transylvania Transformania. And you have no idea how many times I tried to say that name. Uh, this is the fourth film in the Hotel Transylvania series. Uh, it is directed by Jennifer Kluska and Derek Drymon, who worked on a couple of short films on the franchise. Getty Tartakovsky, who created the whole series for Sony. He is on there still as a writer and a producer, uh, but he is not in the directing chair anymore. Uh, this is, you know, giving it to new blood, I should say. If you're not familiar with the series, basic rundown is that it takes place in Transylvania. It's about a hotel for all the universal monsters. So you've got Dracula and Frankenstein and the mummy and a blob named Blobby, and specifically Dracula's daughter, Mavis, uh, who in these movies is voiced by Selena Gomez. She comes back in this. Uh, This takes place a couple of years after the first and the trilogy of movies that we've gotten before. Basically, what you need to know is that you've got Mavis, Dracula's daughter, voiced by Selena Gomez. You've got her husband, Johnny, who is a human, played by Andy Samberg, and Dracula, who originally was voiced by Adam Sandler, now is voiced by uh, Brian Hole, a very accomplished uh, voice actor. And the plot of the movie is basically as follows. Dracula wants to give the hotel to Mavis, but Johnny overhears and really wants to take over the hotel with Mavis. Dracula still doesn't trust Johnny for whatever reason, because he's a human. So... Johnny takes matters into his own hands and goes to Dr. Van Helsing, who is voiced by Jim Gaffigan. He appears from the third movie. Uh, I should mention his daughter, uh, Erica Van Helsing, is now Dracula's new wife. So there's a full connection there. Anyways, Johnny takes one of the devices and turns himself into a human, uh, or into a monster, I should say. Uh, and Dracula, in the midst of everything, turns himself and his whole crew of cronies, again, the Wolfman, Frankenstein, everything, into humans. So now it is a race to find a replacement part for the machine, which is located in the jungle in South America, and try and hopefully make Dracula look good in the process, because, again, he's lying through all this, and Johnny doesn't know why, and hilarity ensues. Um... I should say I was genuinely a fan of the first Hotel Transylvania movie. It's not Adam Sandler's best role he's ever done, but it's his best role in recent memory. Um, there's actual weight to it. He's legitimately funny and getting Tartakovsky knew exactly how to use the animation to that actor's benefit. Uh, the sequels, eh, sure. Why or why not? I can take them or leave them. Uh, this film, I think the steam has run out. Uh, and it's not just because, oh, you know, it gets sold to Amazon and goes direct to streaming, you know, early pandemic, whatever. I think just more of the story in general. Uh, I, I will say real quickly, the animation department should be praised on this. Um, The animators clearly put a lot of work into this. Uh, Kluska and Dryman clearly have a vision for the story of where they want to take the characters. Like, it's very much, we want to get to the jokes. We know what the animation can do, and we're going to use that to give you guys a fun time. Uh, and I can respect that very much. You know, Sandberg and Gomez are still consistent in this. They have okay chemistry when they're on screen, and we'll get to it. Um, and Brian Hull, to his credit, does a pretty accurate Adam Sandler representation, uh, at least Sandler in this role. I think Sandler's nuance is missed, but Hull does a fine job. Uh, and I did laugh a couple times. Like, there are a few funny jokes. There's one in particular with Ben Helsing's pet gerbil that I was legitimately cackling at a couple of times. Because um, they basically, they go back and forth between Johnny and Dracula on the quest for this part and back to the hotel with, you know, Mavis and everything else. And, you know, again, hilarity ensues. I think just for me, um, there's this thing of you know, the original three movies were not great and they were not what you'd call smart, but they had depth and they tried to add things to the series. Like this whole concept of like a hotel for monsters is a really neat idea. And I think for what the first three movies deliver, they try to take things and add to them. Like the first movie was about like Dracula and Mavis's backstory and like going to understand Johnny as a human. The second one was about, you know, Mavis and Johnny's kid. The third one was about, you know, kind of switching up styles and like they have to go on vacation and ignore the hotel for a while. And this one just kind of feels there. Like, a lot of the story didn't really hit. There's not really a villain, aside from just Dracula being himself again. And again, we've, you know, we've been through this with the first movie. So to me, as a fan, it just kind of felt like the character is just going backwards. And Johnny is just kind of, you know, oh, happy-go-lucky Andy Sandberg, just going through it all. And, like, he can do that, obviously. But, like, I found myself laughing a curiously low amount. I was not attached to the story very much. Um, again, the animation's good. The, the pacing's fine. It's barely, I think, an hour and a half. Um, let me see. Yeah, it's, it stretches. Like, it's, it's not even 90 minutes. Um, so it's, you know, it goes quick. It does what it needs to do. But, like, for me, as someone who saw what this franchise could do, when the short films that Kluska and Dryman worked on added more to the franchise than this with, like, you know, the pets and, like, the interworkings of the hotel, this just feels like, let's just take everything away and see what these characters can do. And it doesn't really work for me. For Odyssey, I gave it a 4 out of 10, and that seems pretty generous. I wish I had more to attach on to, whether positive or negatively, because they're like, oh, God, this movie is so awful. It's more just like I didn't latch on to anything, especially as someone who has seen the potential in this franchise. Um, but again, it's streaming on Amazon right now. If you, if you <clears throat> It's streaming on Amazon right now. If you want something quick to watch, if you have kids who need something new to watch, this is there. I think they'll be entertained by it but I think kids and families deserve something more than this. And that's kind of disappointing.
0: Was Selena Gomez's heart in it this time around?
1: Yes. Um, And to be fair, Mavis gets like one cool scene in the movie. And it's probably like the most energetic the movie gets. Um, But I'm, I'm legitimately shocked that, you know, Adam Sandler, and actually Kevin James was a part of this and he's not a part of it anymore. Like they left and she's still on considering how much of, you know, only murders and like her music career and like, she has better things to do than this, and she's still on this, so take that for what
0: she which. does. She does. Only Murders was so great, and I loved talking about that on the pod.
1: It really was. We can't wait for season two. Um, what I can't wait to hear about is Scream, which you got out to see Fourth wall Break just before we started recording. Scream 5 or Scream 2022. Tell us about it and tell us if it holds up.
0: Poor fans, my family, my friends, let's talk Scream. As is typical for the slasher genre, we center kind of around a group of teens who, you guessed it, fall victim to the local serial killer disguising themselves as Ghostface. The iconic killer rotates across different identities throughout the franchise, of which this Scream is the fifth entry. I'm not talking about the MTV show, although the first season is really good. Um, no opinion. Don't ask for my opinion on the second and third season. I don't know anything there. But let's talk this Scream. In this movie, we do return to Woodsboro, the infamous city where Sidney Prescott first had her rundown and lost so many of her friends and was betrayed by her boyfriend in the first Scream movie. And as an audience, we're moving through this sort of whodunit with Melissa Barrera. She plays Sam Carpenter. Some may know her from In the Heights, where she was wonderful. Um, when Sam's sister, Tara, is attacked by the killer one night, uh, her sister, of course, being played by Jenna Ortega from Netflix's You, if you remember from season two, um, it invites their high school friend group or the younger sister's high school friend group and our legacy heroes all to gather back in Woodsboro and resolve who this new masked assailant is and maybe how to stop them, you know, a la evil dies tonight, but not without excellent killings to mark the path. Uh, those legacy characters, before I forget, are Marley Shelton as Deputy Judy Hicks, David Arquette as Dewey Riley. He's the former sheriff of Woods, of Woodsboro, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers Riley, because ooh, she does have a, a marriage with Dewey Riley that lasts some time in the series and final girl, forever final girl, Neve Campbell playing Sydney Prescott. All right. Here are my notes regarding the movie. I am fresh off of it. I did see it this morning. This movie works amazingly as a screen film. It feels that way because of the nuances of the characters who are all sort of locked into archetypes, you know, except for our legacy heroes, but it works for this film. Like they don't, they don't, it's not to their detriment. The kills are bloody and they make you emotional. Lately, I've lost my, oh, I cared about them, you know, attitude over deaths because In horror, people just drop like flies, but I did catch myself caring during the heat of the moment and I was actually rooting for these characters. That's our heroes, you know, our legacy heroes and the new high school kids, um, you know, alike. Whenever we have a Scream movie, there are these cell phone scenes that, you know, feel worthwhile and then sometimes they feel stretched out. Uh, One that comes to mind that I absolutely adored was Hayden Panettiere's conversation with Ghostface in Scream 4. I thought that was so well done. I remember seeing it in the trailers for that movie. And then when I saw that movie, I was just like, damn, that is a Scream queen. Like, I... I wanted to be her in that scene. I think I practice. I might practice that monologue for my next audition. Um, but <laughs> in this film, those cell phone scenes, uh, like I said, they're worthwhile. You know, they don't feel like they overstay their welcome. When Ghostface is on the phone in the fast in the past, it felt kind of formulaic. You know, insert this question from Ghostface, and the person on the phone says, "Here's my answer." Ghostface laughs. There's a light jump scare. Ghostface says, "I'm closer than you think." rinse and repeat that till death do us part. Well, these phone conversations didn't follow the script. And I was thankful for that. At one point I wanted to cheer because when Ghostface calls Sydney and tries to toy with her, she straight up says, I'm bored and hangs up on Ghostface. You don't hang up on Ghostface. Like, ah, just... Final girl queen status, that's what she holds. And it carries through this movie so well. Um, I'm not going to tell too much more. We see Mason Gooding, who I, he's in recent memory because I, I am rewatching, um, Love Victor on Hulu, which he plays a high school jock. So it's kind of funny to, for him to exist as a high school jock in this movie. So in my head, I'm just like, uh, my, my little fan universe is like, this is just him before he transferred to the high school in, in Love Victor. Um, yeah. and that's fun to play with. But- the uh, Simon Screamverse if you will this Simon Screamverse they're connected i'm telling you um but anyways uh, he was excellent i was so happy to see um you know a, a full full length feature work uh, or his work in a full length feature film uh, rather than a series and still playing with that jock um archetype and then this movie has an excellent runtime it's an hour and 45 minutes it moves so quick and that feels amazing when we have just been kind of battered with two-hour-plus run times. I do have one, you know, slight negative, and that is for Melissa Barrera's character, Sam Carpenter. Um, I feel like Barrera feels almost like a statue in some scenes. You know, I say this very respectfully, you know, the woman's beautiful, but sometimes it is so hard for me to read emotion off of her, and I think that that kind of didn't tank the character. It just lightly dropped how much, like, I cared because... I, it didn't feel like, you know, the type of, um, I don't know, the type of fear that I wanted to see in my main character, whose little sister is, is being stalked along with her friend group by a serial killer. Like, I, I just needed to see more panic and I, I didn't get there, or at least that's not what I read from, from Barrera's performance. Um, but otherwise, you know, this, this is definitely more than just, you know, her film. This is a ensemble film and everybody, you know, pulls the weight together. So,
1: I did just want to quickly ask you, uh, just because I've heard comments from uh, Matt Bettinelli-Alpin and uh, Tyler Gilbert, with the uh, directors of this, and they talk about, you know, the influence that Wes Craven has. As someone like you who has seen Scream franchise, you know, through and through, you know, uh, through the years, I should say, do you think this is respectful to that idea that Craven came up with? Again, as someone who just knows it, you know, like that of, you know, the meta devices and the rules behind it and every like, do you feel like it's respectful to Wes beyond just being a good movie? this movie
0: you you could have thrown a different title on it and i would have said this is a scream movie like it, it really does just feel like you're you're returning to what made that original so so just inviting and so welcoming to what that slasher what that slasher genre can hold for an audience that cares and i cared and so um of course yeah and at the end of the movie there's a nice little title card that says for wes and that just felt beautiful
1: that that's really cool because i i know the directors put out like a notes thing on twitter just like oh this is for west and i was like that that seems kind of sweet so i was curious about that
0: this film i am rating at an eight for me and i say that with confidence this movie was excellent um of course if you feel safe and comfortable attending theaters then i highly recommend you go and check it out if not um it wouldn't be surprising if this ended up on some streaming service in the near future and just remember uh silver at plot devices you recommended it so i guarantee you'll enjoy this flick
1: Let's move on then to our final new release for this week. We'll get into TV in for a second. I know all the Star Wars fans are climbing a bit. So am I. Uh, we got to talk about Macbeth first. Uh, the tragedy of Macbeth, uh, so to speak. This is Joel Cohen's uh, directorial solo debut, uh, of course, of the Cohen brothers. He is directing this for the first time without his brother, Ethan, who's apparently going out to do theater stuff. Wish him well, obviously. Uh, this stars his wife, Frances McDermott, as well as Denzel Washington as Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. It's based on the Shakespeare play. I don't think i gotta tell you all what it's about um although i probably should just for my own sake because fourth ball break i've never been that big of a shakespeare nerd so i needed a refresher on this as well uh you essentially have uh, Macbeth, played by denzel washington and his accomplice uh banquo they find some witches in the forest who all three of them in this are played by a uh, catherine hunter a british uh, theater actress who basically tells him like hey you're going to be king one day and Banquo is also going to be like the father of a line of kings and like things are going to go down uh so of course this puts Macbeth on kind of a you know paranoid path only enhanced by his only enhanced by his wife Lady Macbeth played by Brent McDermott and her quest for you know the the consolidation of power with her and her husband joined by Corey Hawkins as Macduff, you also have Brendan Gleeson in there as King Duncan Uh, Harry Melling as Malcolm, another associate of uh, Macbeth's, and the whole thing is just kind of this weird fever dream, purgatory-like of a take on the story of Macbeth about power and paranoia and, you know, where your duties lie as a ruler and how that can be your downfall, as the story of Macbeth has, you know, been for, you know, hundreds of years at this point. Uh, No, I want to go over to you first. Um, Of course, as I mentioned, this is Joel Cohen's first, you know, solo directing outing what was your familiarity with Cohen's work again with his brother and what were your thoughts on tragedy Macbeth as, you know, yes, an adaptation of Macbeth, but also an adaptation of Macbeth for this day and age after we've gotten literally dozens of adaptations from other, you know, acclaimed directors. So I'm a
0: thespian and I feel like Macbeth is something I just like the name, like it is sour in my mouth because everybody's just like the Scottish play. You know, you don't say Macbeth in a theater, or especially when you're involved in the production because bad things happen. Um, but that being said, I'm more familiar with when it comes to Shakespearean, I'm more more familiar with like the story of Hamlet. And um, I even know like Benedict Cumberbatch's take on it um, or his performance as a character because uh, I had to watch it for an assignment like in high school. And it just stuck with me for some reason. But this was my first approach really to the tragedy of Macbeth. And um, what I have to say about it is the movie's a very easy watch. Uh, you don't get lost in elaborate set design or flashy costumes. Um, actually, it's entirely in black and white. It's what the cool kids call grayscale. But you'll instead be captured by the dialogue. It is traditional Shakespearean. So most phrases have this sort of like artistic touch to them. Uh, that being said, you have no time to catch up on what the last dialogue meant, because on the surface, it's one thing, but you really have to like if you wanted to understand the full story you'd probably have to pause and be like hold on let me just make sure i understand this poetry of a statement before i move on to the next scene um although i started this film i actually uh haven't got i haven't gotten all the way through with it but brandon i have a question for you just about like uh some of the rec- directorial t- choices or even the you know the choices of the cinematographer how do you think capturing the story in that grayscale or with the specific aspect ratio that they choose, do you think that that, you know, in any ways limits the sort of appeal that it might have to a wider audience? Or do you think that it pays more to like what the story can serve as, like com- as a complete project?
1: In some ways, I think that it does, because I think there are some people out there who, you know, look at a film like this that is framed so in camera, so directly, that is also black and white and kind of look at it and go, this isn't accessible to me. I would argue, though, that in terms of Joel Cohen's vision, this is a perfect marriage of him, cinematographer Bruno Delbinol, and the production designer, who I unfortunately don't have the name in front of uh, at the moment. But I think it is a perfect Trinity work of those three, because it is so focused in its own world, and it's so good at dragging you in, and has two performers in Washington and McDermott who are able to drag you into the dialogue, no matter what it is, that it becomes this kind of back-and-forth hypnotic sense to the movie, that at least for me, I was always kind of you know, gripped, you know, kind of vice-gripped Ads going into.
0: All right. Just because we're talking like tales and we're talking knights and we're talking kingdoms, throwing a hard question at you. It might be hard. I'm not sure how you feel. The Green Knight or The Tragedy of Macbeth?
1: Oh, is that which I like more?
0: Yeah. Which one did you find enjoyable off the first watch more?
1: Here's the thing. I think Macbeth, and I'll get to this in my thoughts, but I think Macbeth is the better made movie. But I enjoy Green Knight on a purely entertainment level more. There's more things being thrown at you. Like there's the things like the giants and like the burglars and all those things. Whereas Macbeth is very much centered on Macbeth's journey inside the castle with his, you know, uh, with his subjects and like that. So it's kind of a hit and miss. I think there's things that one does better than the other, but I enjoy Green Knight on the whole.
0: I just had to play the this or that when it came to this. Um, Okay. Back to you, Brandon, share us more about your thoughts.
1: And you know what? It's actually a really good this or that, because I think, Lowry and Cohen take very similar but completely opposite approaches to this. Like, they both go, you know, visceral, direct with the visuals and very complex with their leads, but again, on complete other ends of the spectrum. Like, Gawain is populist. Macbeth is, you know, um, Green Knight is colorful. You know, uh, Macbeth is none of that thing. Uh, so I think that's an interesting conversation, actually, to have. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, for me, I I got to check out the, side of the press screening. I was deadly tired, which was a mistake. Um, which the thing is, this movie is only about an hour and 45 minutes. Uh, it actually pretty much flies by, objectively speaking. Um, the thing about it is you have to get involved with it. And as I mentioned in my, uh, my tweet reaction, this is a movie that is Shakespeare as Shakespeare. Um, like all the dialogue is Shakespeare. All the characters act like they're in a play. But again, the camera is so in focus that it's always, you know, keeping you gripped to the screen. So unless you are fully involved with that you're not going to get into this. Um, and again, as I mentioned earlier, I've never been a Shakespeare fanatic. I had to read like the clip notes versions of, you know, this and Romeo and Juliet and all that stuff in you know high school and early college. So there was always that sense of, you know, well, this is all Shakespearean dialogue. Like the whole movie is told in Shakespearean English and, you know, you have Washington McDermott and they are fantastic in this. Uh, they both have Shakespearean backgrounds and you can clearly tell how much love and adoration and, boisterous love they have for the material and how they deliver it you know this is you know it's not the whole thing like the role they were born to play but like it's about as close to that as you can get uh bruno delbin all respect to claire mathlin who i know i said come months ago give claire mathlin her oscar for spencer i get that give bruno delbin his oscar for tragedy Macbeth*. beth every shot of this is a painting like i don't know about you but like i was enthralled by everything visually this film was throwing at me
0: I mean, I concur. I'm right there with you. I think immediately it was clear that this movie, like you said, on a technical level, was hitting the marks because I'm looking at this and I'm just going, damn, this is beautiful.
1: (laughs) And again, the thing about it is, like, you know, I I had that metaphor of like, you know, dreams and like, you know, purgatory zone. And it feels like you could make the argument that this film is, and again, this might be putting on my crazy hat for a moment. This feels like Macbeth, right before his death, Seeing back at the events that led him here and kind of envisioning himself in between the world of the living and the dead. And I think that's only enhanced by Catherine Hunter's portrayal of the witches, which is unlike any portrayal of the witches we've seen so far. Like she's, you know, kind of, I think she has a contortionist background. Like you can kind of tell in the way that she moves and speaks in her dialect. It's kind of perfect for all of this. Like it's kind of terrifying. Like if you're a horror film and you were looking for a Shakespearean adaptation like this, This is for you, um, which I'm sure Noah, you got a big kick out of as well.
0: Oh yeah. Uh, I live for that. When that reveal happened initially, when we, we see that the one, the one witch that, um, we have Macbeth staring at out in the sands. And then we see the, the reflection in the water. It shows that there's three of them. I just, they, they do so many camera tricks like that, that you're just, you know, there's, it keeps you guessing when you're watching the film because you're not just going to get immediately what you expect. There's going to be a neat camera trick around every corner.
1: And again, it is a perfect combination of Cullen, Delbinol, and the production design really framing you in the midst of like, this is madness, and it's only going to get more maddening and confusing and dark from here. Again, from my overall perspective, from a story narrative, from a pacing level, I thought there were things that I couldn't get attached to, but those are all me things. Uh, Noah, at rating out of 10, what would you give Tragedy of the
0: It's an 8 out of 10.
1: I'm actually going to go slightly lower. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Um, only be and it, you know what? It will probably, you know, we're going to be doing our top 10 list of the year in, you know, a week, about a week or so. Um, this will probably get an honorable mention on there. I do truly think it is an achievement in the levels that it has. And again, Washington and McDermott are giving their all here and I have nothing but respect for them. It's solely a me thing. Like if you have to roast me, just be like, ah, you don't get Shakespeare. You're right. I don't get Shakespeare. Like that's totally a me thing. But like everything else, respect the heck out of this movie uh it's in limited theatrical release it's playing on uh, apple tv if you want to stream it at home so if you want to check it out it is there available both of those now we both recommend it uh and if you're a shakespeare nerd and especially one who likes the more you know darker angles of that yeah check this out
0: brandon we watched the rest of hawkeye what are those shorthand notes let's get into the let's get into the tip of the iceberg what did you think
1: yeah, so as far as Hawkeye goes, you know, I think we all kind of, you know, between you, me, and Sam, who we had on the uh, the first half of the discussion, uh, we all kind of enjoyed it for what it was. I certainly had my things that I really appreciated. And having rewatched the entire series since then, and, you know, it's been out for a couple of weeks, and I'm sure people have been like, "Ah, why are you talking about it now? But, you know, we're lazy. Um, You know, we're getting to it, we're getting to it. Uh Watching it for the second time, I am more and more convinced that this was meant to be a two-hour Hawkeye movie that because of whether, you know, time constraints or box office concerns or Disney Plus being the focus, it got extended to a series. And you know what? You can kind of tell if that's the case because a lot of filler is in there. And even in the second half, I felt like even as things were, you know, spiking more, even as we were getting more into, you know, Kazi's involvement with his relationship with Echo, when we get into, you know, spoilers if you haven't watched the second half, Yelena pops up and she becomes a major player in the last two episodes. You know, when we get to things like that, those things are important, and I'm glad that they're there. But you can also feel the show kind of being stretched at the seams, like, you know, dialogue is being extended out. There's more pauses in between the actors that shouldn't be in there. So while I did feel like the second half drags a bit more, I also feel like there's more important things to latch on to. Getting into the finale, which I do think actually, I think it ends off very well. I think it still has that energy of where the show promised to go in those trailers. So I overall enjoyed it, uh, and I'm ready to get into the nitty-gritty about it, but like, I do think that the problems from the first half are still there.
0: We just throw flowers and flowers and flowers at Florence Pugh, but they're, they're well-due like her entrance as Yelena Belova at the end of maybe it's episode four um, it, it's so amazing just to see her interact with characters old and new and have the same level of chemistry. When she's spouting remarks at, uh, Clint while she's asking for an explanation around Natasha's death, you feel the emotion that comes out of her. And that emotion, it, it, tra- it like carries over to Clint because that was his best friend who he lost, who we're reminded of across the Hawkeye series that he still thinks about and he still has met fond memories over. He lost his best friend in battle. Um, and he has survivor's guilt. And then hearing Pew interact with um, Haley Steinfeld's Kate Bishop, give them the most screen time when uh, Kate Bishop walks into her apartment and she just sees uh, Yelena just eating a bowl of or warming a pan of mac and cheese and sprouting her own spreading her own hot sauce in there.
1: Both of those scenes with Yelena and Kate, I think, are the best part of the series by a mile because every note is hidden those scenes they're hilarious they're eclectic they're weird but they're also dark they become you know very serious they get the stakes and between you know Florence Pugh and, and Haley Steinfeld they have all the chemistry in the world like I I could go on and on about those just two scenes alone Right. And so I was so thankful that
0: this, this part of the show was kept for that second half. You know, the first half was really just letting us know what that chemistry looked like between Clint and Kate. And then they threw us the character that we had been waiting to see. Um That's not to say that they don't include also um interesting developments for um our character Echo, who is going to be carried over into the second season. I hope Um one thing fell flat for me for the second half of the season. And that was, because Maybe it's because I haven't seen Daredevil, but it was the introduction of Kingpin. What did you think about
1: that? You are not the only one. Uh, I have heard that from a number of people. And you know what? I The first time around, I understood that. Because, you know, I was so focused on the hype because I have watched Daredevil. Like, Netflix is canon. And like, Wilson Fisk is back. And oh, my God. Um, but the second time around, I kind of appreciate it more. Because the way that they frame him in episode five and six you know, once he's introduced, I like the way that they make it framed in the context of the Hawkeye show. Like you need to know nothing about him from Daredevil to be able to enjoy this. Like he is the boss of, you know, Eleanor. He has this relationship to, you know, Kazi and the crime family and, you know, William Lopez and all that. But like all that is centered on this. Like later we find out, you know, in interviews, like it's was like, Oh, he was blip derp, you know, all this stuff. And with Daredevil, blah, 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 blah. But like in the context of the show, I'm like, yeah, it's confusing at first, but if you look at the actual dialogue, I didn't see any confusion, but I totally get it. Cause again, it, it is from that Netflix world.
0: Yeah. And maybe, I mean, you can tell us and the listeners, you know, what, what did it feel like to have Kingpin introduced in that Daredevil series? Was it the same? Did it feel almost like this? Or did you think it felt completely different? Because I want to, I want to know, like what kind of, you know, what kind of respect does he, does he call demand toward himself in a series where he really is given the time to like be a full character?
1: Full disclosure: I never finished season three of Daredevil. <laughs> no. so, yeah. So, uh, so much for Marvel yeah. fan house. Um, but I, I will say he is given a lot more subtlety in the Daredevil series. Like when he is introduced, there's a very gradual burn to when eventually he, you know, strikes the series. Um versus this where it's like there isn't a photo and then it's kingpin like that's who he is. Um so that I was kind of, I didn't kind of like that because it it kind of contrasted what I liked about the character from the start that he was kind of, you know, just a guy who becomes this figure of crime and embodiment of, you know, evil in the series whereas this is like he's a guy in a Hawaiian shirt and he's, you know, mafioso.
0: Some other highs for me for the second half of that season are going to be um the excellent swordsmanship from Eleanor's partner, whose name slips my memory. But he kind of steps up in the final battle and we see him and how well he operates that Ronin sword. And I was like, let him have it. Like he clearly he is fighting for the good. And we did have um he was our red herring in the first half of the season. So to see him like really be the man or be the person that we, that he professed himself to be since the start. Um, It was, it was great to see them just still pay attention to that. And also have all of our LARPing, have all of our LARPs come back to fight. How great was that?
1: The LARPers get to, and you know what? I, I don't love the LARPers as characters, but I love what they represent for the series because it is solely about, you know, Clint, a guy with no powers, who is on like three blocks in New York trying to do a thing. And like, I love that the LARPers kind of represent that idea of, you know, as cliche as it is for, like, anybody can be a hero. But it's a thing of, again, like, anyone who has the guts to do what is right and point their skills towards the cause at hand, I like that idea. Like, it's cheesy, but it works.
0: There wasn't a heavy shift for Kate to be recognizably stronger than how we saw her at the start of the series. And that for me is a, is a plus because this is the start of a character who I want to see develop. I want to see her grow her skills. This is her first time kind of training and working alongside an Avenger level level hero. Um, And so one, one high moment for me was just her fight with Kingpin because she gets her ass whooped. And that's important because Kate Bishop is just starting out. We're barely starting to root for her. And so she can't win all those battles. She doesn't. And so I just think that that's going to pay to her overall development when we do see that, which I'm like hoping for. Um And, you know, when I consider the other characters who are included towards the end um and how they felt like Yelena, we, we know her status as a Black Widow assassin. Um, and she doesn't let up in that fight against Flint flint she doesn't let up against that fight against clint um and the final battle isn't as like i guess like adrenaline fueled um when it comes to clint and kate fighting the red jumpsuits all around them on that like skate rink what was what was the coolest part of that fight scene for me just watching were you know, we're, we're all just like Kate, we're all looking at those arrows and going, show us the trick arrows. And there's like gravity exploding trick arrows. There's, um, there's some that just, you know, they'll just, uh, with like a, like a helicopter. They'll just pick them up by their feet and just levitate them meters off the ground. Um, there's and an, particles. The PIM particles, there's the PIM arrows where they're kind of like, what do we do now that they're the size of a Lego? And an owl swoops in and just has its dinner. And I was like, well, they're the bad guys. They should get eaten by an
1: owl. <laughs> although, although I love quick world building thing. I love how Clint mentions Scott. Like number one, he remembers Scott, but number two, he's actually concerned about the guy. Just like, yeah, like they're your enemies, but like he's not heartless. <laughs> The last, like, big point that I want to bring up is, you know, twofold. Again, Kate and her mom, that scene uh, by the police car, like, I think you could have done more with that. But, again, I like how simple it feels. Again, having gone through, you know, episodes that elongated their pacing and everything, I like that it was just quick and simple of just, like, oh, so this is how it is. Yeah, this is just how it is. Like, I still love you, you still love me, but, like, this is just kind of how this would be. And, like, it ends on kind of a downer note, only to then have the Christmas scene back on the Barton farm that I think is just... It doesn't rectify the series, but it is a perfect ending. Like, it's happy. You have Lucky there. You have the kids there. He passes on the mantle that we kind of hear. Like, it's what I wanted to see for the series as a whole.
0: Yeah, you you took the words out of my mouth, Brandon. Did you want to see, you know, in the series, did you want to see that Rogers musical number? Did you?
1: I still do. I still think you get uh, Thomas, what's his name, the guy who directed the Hamilton footage. You get him, you get the cast on stage for a couple hours, you record the damn thing. Like, it's too good not to do.
0: Because um, I know there's that after credit scene for anybody who didn't stay all through the end credits of Hawkeye. You get that full, you know, uh, I couldn't... I think, oh, oh my gosh, of course it's the name... I can do this all day. I think that's what it's called because it's Rogers the Musical. Um, that number was ridiculous. Like even that made even me cringe. I'm like the musical theater resident here at Plot Devices. But <laughs> let me tell you, I still love it. Like I'm still going to go back to it one day and be like, let me just experience this all over again. <laughs> but remind, so me,
1: remind me to send you someone on Twitter actually made like a fake like uh, play booklet for and it has like the whole plot rundown. It's yeah. actually kind of a good story. And I, I'll, I'll present it to you.
0: Yeah, I'll trust that the, mar- that the that the development team behind Hawkeye was like, yeah, if Rogers was a musical, what would it look like? Who would be the stars? And yeah, send me that. I'll, I'll pick through every piece of that. Um, uh, I don't have any final remarks on Hawkeye. I really did enjoy this series. It was short, but it felt like they did so much there. And they really did throw a lot at us, more than I expected.
1: If uh, if it's not too much trouble, uh, can we rank this in the context of the other Disney Plus series from last year? Yes, we can. All right. I have my ranking. I'll go first just to make it easier. Um, from five to one? Yeah, because there's five. Um, from five to one, I will go from bottom to top. Um, Falcon Warrior Soldier, I still think is the weakest. Um, I still think Hawkeye is just second to last. But again, that's only because of lack of episodes with pacing. You know, my, But again, I like everything it does with it. Uh, then I will go just barely what if, because I love the creativity, but I think it misses the mark at some points. Loki because the pilot and the finale are pretty much perfect in my eyes, even at the middle, it doesn't quite work. Um, And then WandaVision, which I still think is a triumph of the TV show. So Falcon, Winter Soldier, Hawkeye season one, um, What If season one, Loki season one, and then WandaVision. Uh, Noah?
0: Um, But the Falcon and the Winter Soldier will be number five. I have, I wasn't aware we were going to include What If, so it's got me thinking now, but- You don't have to. No, I mean, I think I do want to put What If- Oh my gosh, but Miss Minutes, Miss Minutes, we have Kang. Okay, I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna go Falcon and the Winter Soldier. <laughs> Hawkeye. <laughs> Dude, I'm gonna it's like Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I'll do what if, Hawkeye, low-key, then WandaVision. So our only difference is that we we switch the placements of Hawkeye and what if. Um there you have our rankings of the Marvel Disney Plus series. Brendan, we're Tuning out of the MCU and going into a space far, far away. What can you tell us about the book of Boba Fett?
1: This is also exciting because I know you and me are the Star Wars fans of this show. And this is the first time we're talking about canon Star Wars. because We've talked about visions, but this is, you know, proper canon. Uh, so this will be exciting. Book of Boba Fett. Uh, this is the spinoff to the first two series of The Mandalorian. Uh, of course, spoilers if you haven't watched those shows. Uh, Boba Fett is back. Um, if you didn't know from was talking about the Book of Boba Fett, Boba Fett is back. Um, he appears in Season 2 of, of Mandalorian. We get to see a few guest thoughts from him. At the end of that series, he comes to Jabba's Palace along with Fennec Shand, played by Ming-Na Wen. And they kill Bib Fortuna and essentially take over Jabba's Palace. So now we get Book of Boba Fett. Uh, this, again, takes place, you know, in between... Uh, the events of episode six and episode seven, uh, so Return of, Jedi and For- or, uh, Return of the Jedi and Force Awakens. You once again have Boba Fett played by Tamara Morrison, Maynard Wen as Fennec Shand. They are trying to lead the, the deceased Jabba the Hutt's territory on Tatooine while dealing with all manner of sorts, uh, in regards to that. You have Matt Barry as a, uh, torture droid who is, in, uh, who is kind of employed in Fett's service, so to speak. You have uh, David Piscassi from uh, Veep, who plays the sort of foolish aide to the mayor, uh, who and this is an alien an uh, uncredited voice actor, I believe. You have Jennifer Beals as um, a Twi'lek who owns a bar that Boba Fett goes to. And the whole series thus far has kind of been just, again, Boba and Fennec kind of dealing with various obstacles in their path. All while Boba is healing from his wounds from the Mandalorian and having flashbacks to his time when he escaped the Sarlacc pit at the end of Return of the Jedi. He's taken in by the Tusken Raiders, who are, you know, if you remember from the series, kind of, you know, think Dune. Uh, think that basically, you know, Sand People, Lawrence of Arabia, that kind of thing. Um, you know them from the series. I don't need to explain it to you. But he lives amongst them. He gains the respect and, you know, things happen from there. It's two distinct stories. Noah, over to you. Um, what were your anticipations for Book of Boba Fett based on what you'd seen in Mandalorian? What were your expectations for Boba Fett? Because I know he is a character who has had a long and devoted fan base, despite his very limited presence on screen. Um, and how does this impact your view of the characters from the first three episodes?
0: I would say coming off of The Mandalorian, we were, you know, following a character who for the most part just lives an isolated life, you know, doesn't doesn't try to make noise where he has to do his work, just trying to make his coin and um eventually, you know, upgrade his armor, upgrade his weaponry. When we're dealing with a character like Boba Fett, that ending in season two, or that like post-credits ending that we saw of him taking the throne on, in Tatooine, it kind of just showed you the kind of like, the kind of dominating presence that that character has. And even that costume alone, when you see Boba Fett's costume, that's like an iconic helmet um, that people are going to recognize. This dude walks around with an RPG on his back. So <laughs> he's going to demand respect. And so that's what I was looking for when I first started the series or when it, when it was announced, I was like, I hope this feels different because it's not going to be the isolated ranger. You know, I almost see him as just like, he's the new, he's the new guy in town and he's not going to take, you know, she's not going to take down talk from anybody. And that's what I want to see. Like him and Fennec Shen, they're a power couple. Like that's a killer team because um, Fennec Shen just talking small about her character um, or about that character. She's so laid back and confident that the two really don't have to be careful when they engage with others. They got each other's back, whatever kind of situation they get in, we know they're going to fight or blast their way out of. And they're respectable to a degree, like to the people around them but they're not required to play nice by anyone's account. And that's that's what I wanted to see from this team is I wanted to see two people who they were going to be the powerhouse that just drives drives their motivations and they don't really need anybody's permission to act. And so the more and more I get through the series, the more I see that. And that's what I'm on board with. You know, I, I think that when we transition to the Tatooine scenes and the Tatooine, or sorry, the sand scenes of the flashbacks, it gets a little bit slower for me because it feels like we just we were just there with Mandalorian's character, um, except this time we're helping the Tusken Raider, um, community or the Tusken Raider smaller, like little, little village that they're operating on. Um, I did enjoy episode two because it centers around like the takeover of the train, which is just a a nice like concept to play with. And, And seeing that in the star Wars world was even, was even greater. Yes. Tatooine can be ugly and just sand at times, but, um, I think they really nailed it when it came to giving us that history of what happened to Boba between the last time we saw him when he was swallowed whole by like a sandworm or a sand just mouth because I'm so used to doing, I said sandworm. Um, And then seeing, you know, what the hell happened to this guy and how did he just end up meeting the Mandalorian at the time that we did? Those were my opinions out the gate.
1: Yeah, I, I watched the first episode, and I should also mention, uh, Robert Rodriguez, uh, who did the book of, who did the Boba Fett re to of The Mandalorian. He show runs this alongside, uh, John Pabro and Dave Filoni, of course, from The Mandalorian as well. He directs a couple of the episodes. Uh, Dave Filoni will be, I believe, directing as well. Um, Steph Green directed the second episode. Robert Rodriguez did the first and third. Uh, I didn't love the first episode. Uh, I thought it was kind of a bit plotting. I, I liked Boba and Fennec's chemistry, but I felt like, again, like you, the flashbacks didn't really engross me. You know, I wasn't really attached to the Tatooine stuff in that episode didn't really put in proper stakes. It was kind of like they're here. They're going to do things. We'll get to it. And then episode two and three, we get to it and we see more of the stuff with like, you know, him and the the twins that we see. We see the black chrysanthemum, the uh, Wookiee bounty hunter who sent in. We see the stuff with, you know, the uh, the as people call them sort of the um, the greaser street gang with the uh, the colorful you know, speeders kind of thing. That was, Brandon, what
0: the hell was that? That was so cool to see out of nowhere. We see these like things that look like they're from the seventies of on earth and the people that are dressed on them don't look like they're from the Star Wars universe. I was like, are these people from some kind of republic? Because this isn't Star Wars too. Like this looks, this looks foreign, but I was taking it in.
1: And you know what? I think it's totally star Wars because beyond the fact that Robert is the guy who did the spy kids movies, which makes total sense. It's also George Lucas. And like, this is like, this is the guy who directed American graffiti. Like when you put those two things together, like this doesn't seem that out of place until you realize that like you're on Tatooine and like everything is a shade of Brown. I was Um, like, wow, color. Yeah. Right. What a concept. Uh, That isn't isn't Boba's green suit. Um, I, I will say Boba and Fennec's relationship I think is fascinating because on the one hand, I low-key kind of ship them. On the other hand, I do legitimately like how necessary they feel each other to be. Like, I like how Fennec looks to Boba for some semblance of. Some, I really wish, I, I really hope we get down the line how they actually met. Because that is still the big mystery of the show. Of Like, why does Fennec care about Boba? Like, we know why Boba cares about Fennec, but we don't know the other way around. Um, so I'm hoping we get that at some point. I do love... Overall, I love the idea of Boba becoming his own man and also fearing that idea because the flashbacks we get are very much in line with him and Django, you know, back on, you know, Camino and all that stuff. And there's this subtle fear that Tamora Morrison, I've noticed, plays some of those authoritarian scenes. Like, there's a wink in his eyes whenever he's trying to be, you know, big and gruff and mean that, like, he's still on some level that scared little boy on Geonosis who lost his dad. But he is trying to shed that behind and do what the, you know, what the Tuskens have taught him, you know, the lessons that he's learned in those past few years. And I love that complexity to the character that, for me, has never been there. Like, Bulba Fett has always just been, like, a cool bounty hunter who is there. And here, he gets to be something more, and I appreciate it.
0: I do want to talk for a moment um, about, uh, you know, these creatures that we see. Um, this series debuts some, like, fresh, like, hound-like giant lizards that are domesticated by the tuscan raiders uh those are pretty interesting i always love seeing just like what what new material um and new life that can be shown to us from the star wars universe because it's always nice to see the familiar but show me more on this world there's so many books there's so much lore out there about this thing that i just want to eat it up i want to see more and more and then another thing that we're shown is something that looks like goro from mortal kombat it's like i don't know what that is and i'm so curious you know what I thought of? That it looked like that. Um, you've seen Spy Kids too, right? Yeah. Of the course. loss. So, you know, that like final creature that, um, it it just looks like that. It looks like that final creature that walks on its hind legs that almost has like a gorilla kind of like stature to it. But that's what I saw immediately. And then, so when Robert Rodriguez popped up, I'm like, not surprised. Um, but it's just so imaginative to include these different, these different prey in the, in the world of, or predators in the world of Star Wars that we're not used to. We're used to droids. We're used to, um, when it comes to creatures, maybe like those, those giant, those friendly giants, um, snuffle looking things with like their horns. Um, oh, the betas. Yeah, the swirly horn creatures, you know the name. Um, and then knowing Boba's history with the huts, specifically Jabba, I was just happy to see more of those. The huts carry themselves like royal, like gangsters, and they run things on Tatooine. So seeing them, I like witnessing how or who demands respect in that in that universe or in that community
1: because it feels believable i'm in the world with it and that was great it does I, I do wish they were practical though like i think cg huts look weird uh just as far as you know stuff that maybe we want to see in the future what do we want to see explored because we've already gotten you know Bulba's kind of you know gathering his own family he's slowly but surely starting to be recognized in most you know that kind of thing what would you like to see from this beyond either in stuff we've gotten or like fan service stuff
0: Brendan, chapter four, the very next episode will be directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. And she yes. gave us highlight episodes from Mandalorian season one and Mandalorian season two. So I'm actually, you know, regarding content, I'm not too sure what I want to see. yet. I'm still just on board with where this adventure takes us. But I'm ready to see that director's touch. And I want to see how, how um Bryce Dallas Howard handles this, this additional chapter in the book of Boba Fett.
1: I definitely want to see more bounty hunters because I like the idea of Boba's past coming to haunt what he has tried to build himself up to be. Um, I'm, I will say I, this is not what I want to see, but I'm shocked at in episode, uh, three, we get like that brief flashback of just like, like we think in episode two that the Tusken Raider stuff is going to go on for a while. Like he lived with them for a you few know, years and it's like, nope, they're all dead. And like that's just the end of it. <laughs> um, like that was weird. Uh, but I'm curious to see where that leads into the flashbacks and that angle of it. I would love for Bryce Dallas Howard's episode to be the revelation of how Fennec and Boba met, because I feel like with her episodes, she approaches the personal relationships of Star Wars so well that I would love to see something like that.
0: Yeah, I think if they can continue playing with somebody now who has, like, a hand in the political game, let's play with that. Let's play with that in the world of Star Wars and let's stick with it, because this is somebody who, for, you know, lack of a better term, he's not a diplomat. Like, he doesn't, he doesn't, he hasn't always lived in this role. So seeing him adopt these practices or adopt these, like, um, what are they called? Like uh, Courtesy. Like, yeah, mannerisms. Let's see how that plays to his favor or possibly to his detriment and what the finale will be.
1: And the uh, the first three episodes of Boba Fett are, of course, are available on C-plus right now. Uh, they're streaming, I believe, once every week. We're getting seven episodes. So by the time the next show comes out, we will probably have the remainder of the season to talk about uh, either that of the following episodes. So just stay tuned for that and we will get to you guys as soon as we can that will do it for episode 19 of plot devices thank you guys so much for tuning in listen while we've got you here do us a quick favor uh go to our twitter and instagram pages at plot devices pod on twitter and instagram go follow us there you'll get updates to that out there and if you're listening to us on either spotify or apple Podcasts, why not subscribe to the other one uh you'll get updates on both that's again plot devices podcast on twitter instagram and as well as plot devices on spotify and apple Podcasts once a week Again, my editing has been backed up for the last couple of weeks, but I promise I'm getting all this out. By the time you hear this episode, we should also have our most anticipated films of 2022 list out, as well as episode 18 out, where we talked all about, like, movies that we missed. So Matrix, Don't Look Up, that's all going to be—you uh, should be able to listen to that as this episode is coming out. I want to, of course, thank my co-host for today, Mr. Noah Guzman. Noah, uh, where can people find you, and what do you got going on in your life?
0: Hello, listeners. You can find me on Twitter at Noah's plotting. Um, I have mentioned this in prior episodes, but this it feels like the week it's going down. Um, I have seen that screen movie now. So I will be writing a review for Odyssey. Um, and I have uh, a review due for Cyrano, which is a film that I talked about some time ago, um, that I will need to be uh covering on Odyssey as well. So keep a lookout for that. Um, but other than that, I mean, I'm keeping up with any anime fans in the car or in their homes listening. I'm keeping up with Demon Slayer, Attack on Titan. We will circle back to some euphoria in the future, but just stay tuned. We got exciting TV at the start of the year and it won't stop.
1: We do. And uh, HBO's Peacemaker as well, which you talked about before the show. Uh, you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. That's Twitter and Instagram at TheMovieKing45. I just posted my review of the uh, Hotel Transylvania Transformania. Go check that out on there, as well as my top 10 list. Uh, my written top 10 list will be out sometime this week. And then our top 10 for this show, which we'll be doing as just a mini-sode, that'll be hopefully up next weekend. We're planning on it. Uh, just bear with us in mind, but keep your eye out for that. Uh, so that, that list is coming soon. We have a lot of work to do on that. From myself, from Noah Guzman, this has been Plot Devices Episode 19 on The Road to Episode 20, and we will see you guys next time for that 20th episode. Have a wonderful day.